what the framers of the 14th Amendment were afraid of is there would come a time when there would be an individual who was both a threat to our constitutional system of government and also has enough public support that they plausibly could get elected. Trump has a lot of mass support and a lot of them have guns. You know, they already attacked the U.S. Capitol once. If they decide this case on January 15th, the trial can move forward and, and, you know, hopefully everything is great. If they decide to sit on this case for weeks or months, that's a problem. I would not count on the judge fairy to show up and sprinkle magical pixie dust all over the United States. And then the United States is saved from fascism. Welcome back to the Refuse Fascism Podcast. This is episode 184, the first of season five, the first of the new year of the Refuse Fascism Podcast, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of this show. Refuse Fascism exposes, analyzes, and stands against the very real danger and threat of fascism coming to power in the United States. In today's episode, we're sharing an interview with Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox, to discuss just some of the Trump trials, some of the legal efforts to hold Trump accountable, and some of Trump's attempts to avoid accountability. Thanks to everyone who made an end-of-the-year gift in support of the show, and to all our patrons, including our new patrons. Cheers to everyone who goes the extra step and rates and reviews the show on Apple Podcasts, shares and comments on social media or the YouTubes. It helps us reach more listeners. So thank you. After listening to today's show, take a sec to help grow this community by writing a review and dropping five stars wherever you listen on Spotify. Click What Did You Think of This Episode to let us and others know your thoughts. Subscribe, follow, so you never miss an episode. Yesterday marked three years since Trump's rolling coup turned into insurrection at the Capitol. And the maggots haven't backed down or been defeated. They've been building power with Trump, the orchestrator, still at the helm. And they are honing their strategies, creating blueprints for consolidation and are poised, not destined, to retake the White House with all the bloody vengeance that entails. January 6th, and as Trump called them at his latest Nazi rally on the anniversary of January 6th, the January 6th hostages are now a rallying cry for the fascist movement, lovers of rewriting history, lovers of martyrs that they are. According to the new poll from the Washington Post University of Maryland, more than seven in 10 Republicans say way too much is being made of January 6th, and it is, quote, time to move on. According to a CBS News YouGov poll, the minority who approve of the January 6th attempt has actually been growing, reaching the highest it's ever been. This is undergirded by the softening of Republican disapproval, which shouldn't surprise us at all. It is no surprise that the majority of Republicans are in favor of pardons for January 6th participants. It is no surprise that the majority of Republicans believe his name should be on the ballot. It is worth noting that nearly half of Americans polled believe there will be violence over losses in future elections. 
And it's also worth noting that disinformation about the events, complete lies, continue to find sizable acceptance. The Washington Post University of Maryland poll found that 25% of Americans polled say it is quote-unquote probably, quote-unquote definitely true that the FBI instigated the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Unsurprisingly, this number goes up when looking at Republicans. 34% say the FBI organized and encouraged the insurrection. Here is Paul Street, editorial board member for RefuseFascism.org, with his reflections on this third anniversary. Hello there, this is Paul Street. This is the Paul Street Report. It is January 6th, haunting day, three-year anniversary of Donald Trump's January 6th. 2021 putsch attempt. That attempted coup, my friends, coup was unsurprising to those of us who understood from the start that the deranged Trump presidency and base were fascist and therefore ready to trash previously normative bourgeois electoral democracy and rule of law. This was the outcome of something that was very consistent with what refused fascism had been saying all along. Like Charlottesville, like his responses to the pandemic and the George Floyd rebellion, Trump's January 6th capital insurrection was the Trump and Trumpism that refuse fascism had been warning Americans in the world about for four years, telling people to take to the streets and the public squares to remove the orange menace before it banged more nails into the coffin of American democracy, such as it was. But all's well that ends well, right? Joe Biden's election proves that refused fascism was engaged in boy who cried wolf alarmism far beyond the actual menace, right? The normal bourgeois democratic constitutional, legal, and electoral constraints have held along with the common democratic decency of we the people. Yes? No any other good jokes? Three years later, the orange malignancy is far and away the Republican Party's presidential nominee. He has tens of millions of Americans believing that the 2020 election was stolen, something that was disproven in, in more than 60 court cases. A third of the nation's Republicans say that political violence is justified to save the country, meaning to enforce traditional social hierarchy. Hair Trump has used the threat of political and physical retribution from his deranged base to eliminate opposition to neo-fascism within his own party. All 10 of the U.S. House Republicans who properly voted for his impeachment after January 6th have been run out of the party or at least out of effective political power by the Trump movement. The current House Speaker is a Trumpist Christian fascist election denier who doesn't really like the separation of church and state. Trump is polling considerably ahead of the unpopular warmonger and ecocidal corporatist genocide Joe Biden. Trump is polling ahead of Biden in the seven swing states that absurdly determine U.S. presidential election outcomes under the archaic democracy-flunking U.S. electoral college system. Biden's big January 6th speech yesterday calling out Trump as a threat to democracy has fallen on deaf ears. Americans are busy trying to keep up with inflation and Biden's record of serving the wealthy few in defiance of the popular majority while investing vast U.S. resources in bloody wars, including a racist genocide in Gaza, 
renders transparently inauthentic his rhetoric about how the United States is the greatest nation and democracy in the history of the world. Trump is running for the presidency this time, not just with Steve Bannon and a few arch-reactionary plutocrats whispering in his ear, as in 2016, but now this time with an armada of Republican policy institutions in his fold. The Heritage Foundation and other fascism mainstreaming partners like the Conservative Partnership Institute and the Center for Renewing America have worked up Project 25, a giant detailed agenda for the full Christian white nationalist authoritarian takeover and makeover of the federal government. Herr Trump, and when I say Herr, I'm spelling it H-E-R-R, as in German. Trump will make loyalty to him the top criteria for holding positions in the vast U.S. executive branch, from the top cabinet positions all the way down through the mid-level, formerly civil service positions. Trump is making little effort to hide his fascist sentiments and agenda this time. He's openly channeling Hitler in public making neo-Nazi statements that get a deplorable pass from his own party, including his top contenders for the Republican nomination. Trump's 2024 campaign rallies open with singing by a chorus of incarcerated January 6th rioters, people he calls patriots, and who he promises to pardon when he returns to power. Trump now advocates the extrajudicial execution of suspected shoplifters. His campaign pledges to build giant concentration camps for so-called illegal migrants and asylum seekers. He says his former Joint Chiefs of Staff chair should have been executed for reassuring China that the U.S. would not start a nuclear war after January 6th. Trump promises to invade Mexico and says he wants to be a dictator for one day, whatever the hell that means, because he says, I want to build the wall and drill, 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 meaning just take off all obstacles to the unlimited greenhouse gassing of the planet. Trump vows to eliminate his political enemies, who he calls vermin. Yes, vermin, using the Nazis' language for those that the Third Reich wished to exterminate and in many cases did. Trump says he will suppress independent media and deploy the military in American streets to quash protests. He tells the people who attend his hate rallies that he will be their retribution, their revenge, their vengeance. He says he wants to deport socialists, Marxists, and communists, including those born within the United States. He says he wants to get rid of birthright citizenship, a critical linchpin aspect of the 14th Amendment. And now we have Trump openly channeling Hitler's deranged autobiography, Mein Kampf, by claiming that non-white immigrants are spoiling white American pedigree and stock, that they are, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. That's just straight-up eugenicist Hitlerism. Also straight out of the Nazi playbook is Trump's palingenetic nationalist stabbed-in-the-back rhetoric, claiming that the biggest threat to the greatness of America comes, quote, from within. That's what Trump says now. Our biggest dangers aren't outside the country. They're internal to the country. And by this, he means the supposedly radical left, in fact, capitalist imperialist Democrats. Meanwhile, the federal judiciary, from the Supremes on down, 
is stocked with Christian fascist Trump appointees. The 2024 Senate election lineup favors Republic fascist takeover of the upper legislative chamber. 20-plus red, that is, Trumpist states, make revanchist policy in abject defiance of majority national opinion on numerous key policy matters, including, of course, abortion rights, gun safety, voting rights, and the right of children and young adults to receive proper schooling about the history of their country. The Republic fascist majority in the U.S. House has just collaborated with bipartisan Zionists to force the resignation of two presidents of elite ruling class Ivy League universities, UPenn and Harvard. But surely all the criminal prosecutions against him will undo Trump's bid for a dictatorship, right? Yay, rule of law. Prosecutors will save us and judges. Not so fast. The Senate could and should have kept the orange fascist maniac off the 2024 ballot by voting to convict him after the U.S. House impeached him for inciting the January 6th Capitol riot. But the badly malapportioned and right-tilted Senate failed to do that, thanks in no small part to its Republican members' fear, both electoral and physical, of the fascist Trump base. We know that numerous Republican senators were concerned about their own and their family's physical safety when it came to that vote in early 2021. None of the charges Trump is facing from state prosecutors and federal special prosecutor Jack Smith would cancel his 2024 presidential bid. Jack Smith failed to indict Trump for insurrection, a charge that would, in theory, cancel his candidacy under the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment if it brought a conviction before the election. But Smith decided not to indict Trump for insurrection. The House Select Committee, headed by Jamie Raskin, that detailed the many-sided, long-rolling Trump fascist coup attempt of 2020-21 recommended an insurrection prosecution, and Smith failed to follow up on it. The felony charges against Trump in New York, Georgia, Florida, and Washington, D.C. have, along with lawsuits against him in New York City, been a boon to Trump's campaign. They are fundraising gold for him. They feed his core narrative, claiming that he is being selectively prosecuted and persecuted by a radical left deep state that is trying to derail democracy. The federal classified documents verdict and perhaps trial in Florida is being effectively delayed until after the 2024 election by a corrupt, demented Trump-appointed judge, Eileen Cannon. The Georgia election interference case will not yield a verdict until after the election, and the same likely goes for the New York campaign finance case. The Trump-created Christian fascist Supreme Court may well seriously cripple Jack Smith's election interference prosecution of Trump if and when Trump regains power. He and his neo-fascist party will quickly proceed to turn the United States into a new Hungary or very possibly something much worse. And then the federal cases against him will vanish. He will have no problem nullifying any and all state cases against him. History could well record that the war criminal and fossil capitalist Joe Biden's gutless centrist attorney general Merrick Garland flunked 
rule of law school by waiting far too long to appoint a prosecutor to punish Trump for trying to overthrow what was left of U.S. bourgeois electoral and rule of law democracy in 2020-21. Current liberal efforts to keep Trump off state election ballots on 14th Amendment grounds could be useful when it comes to organizing mass resistance to a second Trump White House. But the bans require U.S. Supreme Court approval to be enforced, and such approval seems highly unlikely, to say the least. It is now fairly common to hear Trump accurately, if belatedly, decried and described as a fascist. The F word actually being used in certain wings of U.S. mainstream media. It's kind of hard, I suppose, to avoid the association when Trump's calling his enemies vermin and channeling Hitler's blood and soil and stabbed in the back rhetoric. But all Joy Reid, Morning Joe, Rachel Maddow, Michelle Goldberg at the New York Times, The Atlantic, Lawrence Tribe, uh, the uh, famous retired Harvard Law professor, Tribe's student and impeachment floor leader Jamie Raskin, and indeed Joe Biden, and the rest of the liberal class, so-called, really all they really have to offer in terms of what is to be done about the fascist menace is just to double down on the same old failing bourgeois democracy, the same old failing bourgeois rule of law, and the underlying capitalist imperialist order that these pretend forms of popular sovereignty reflect and protect. We will not vote, prosecute, boycott, op-ed, or Instagram post our way past the fascist Americana menace. It will take a remarkable new people's movement beneath and beyond all of that, not only to beat back fascism in the immediate sense, but to confront and undo the underlying oppression and exploitation systems and the social and political conditions that give rise to fascism in the first place. We've got our work cut out for us. The future is up to us. This was originally published as an essay titled On January 6th, Three Years Later, The Trump Republic Fascist Menace is Alive and Well, on Paul's Substack, The Paul Street Report. It is linked in the show notes. To read and hear more from Paul, subscribe to his Substack. Check the show notes for just some of the analysis on the January 6th coup attempt we have run on the podcast the past three years, which continues to be essential listening. We also want to recommend that you listen to Deja Coup, Donald Trump, and the Slow Civil War, Stop Waiting for the Next Insurrection, We're Already in It. Dahlia Lithwick interviews Jeff Charlotte on the latest episode of Amicus. It uploaded yesterday and is linked in our show notes. Today, we're discussing details and developments of criminal cases against Trump, but we wanted to make something clear before we dive in. Refuse fascism has always been upfront that the mechanism that is used to oust fascists, bar them from office, or hold them accountable for their actions is of much less concern than the political will to do so. And that motivation can only come from the mobilization of millions of people consciously taking action to stop fascism across every facet of our culture and our society. Without that societal transformation, not only is it very unlikely for legal repercussions to come down against the fascist movement, but it's also unlikely that they'd stick. And more likely that the fascist movement would be empowered by what they see as vindication of their martyr status. The legitimacy that their outcomes may hold won't come from their precedent in law, 
the thoroughness of the due process, their airtight legal theories, but will only derive from the strength of the mass movement against fascism. As we mentioned earlier in this episode, the MAGA movement and the entire GOP has hardened since the January 6, 2021 coup attempt. While there might be some who would be positively influenced by court cases that have the full trappings of American law and order legitimacy, we are dealing with an overwhelmingly unreasonable MAGA and MAGA deferential population that has deep antipathy, I guess, right, hostility towards what they see as already a weaponized justice system. And they already believe that the system is against them, whatever that means to them. They are immune to facts or reason or empirical evidence of any sort, to the 60-plus court cases proving the outcome of the 2020 election, to the meticulous and substantial congressional investigation, to the 725 sub-completed federal prosecutions of the January 6th participants. They don't believe their eyes, you know, if it isn't on some fucking Reddit feed or whatever the 2024 equivalent is. Even if there might be some amongst their ranks for whom this court case, such as Ian will describe to you in this interview, would raise doubts. They will fall in line. They will defer to the cult they have pledged loyal to, absent profound changes amongst the people in this country. Our central mission, therefore, isn't how are we going to change their minds or how are we going to inoculate against fascist violence coming from the base? Instead, really, how are we going to not only keep Trump out of the White House, but purge this fascism from society. This interview was recorded December 21st, so there are a couple of updates. The D.C. Court of Appeals will hear oral arguments in Trump's immunity case on January 9th, this Tuesday, after the Supreme Court declined to fast-track the case directly to their docket, as requested by Special Prosecutor Jack Smith. And the U.S. Supreme Court decided to hear Trump's challenge to the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to remove Trump from the ballot. The court scheduled arguments for February 8th. With that, here is my interview with Ian. Today, we're talking about just some of the cases that the Supreme Court will be hearing and deciding in this new year with Ian Milheiser. Ian is a senior correspondent at Fox, where he focuses on the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and the decline of liberal democracy in the United States. He received a JD from Duke University and is the author of two books on the Supreme Court. Welcome, Ian. Thanks for coming on. It's good to be here. Thanks so much. So, Ian, there are two cases, as I understand it, before the Supreme Court regarding Trump's insurrection alongside a slew of pertinent legal developments in lower courts. So I was hoping that we could start with United States versus Trump. In this case, my understanding, again, is that we're seeing the Supreme Court weigh in on whether the president can get away with even insurrection by dint of just being president. Can you tell us a little bit more about the case? First of all, I'd say this is probably going to be the first of many cases called U.S. v. Trump or maybe Trump v. U.S. that are going to have to be heard by the Supreme Court in the next several months. There has never been a former president prosecuted for a crime before. While I don't think that Trump deserves special treatment because he used to be an important person, that does raise legal questions that have never been resolved before. And when you have big, important legal questions that have never been resolved, before the body that ultimately has to resolve them is the Supreme Court of the United States. 
So you're going to have lots of issues coming up as these criminal trials move forward. The issue that has come up now is one that, frankly, I think is a little frivolous. And I would be surprised even if this very conservative Supreme Court latches on to what Trump is selling here. Trump is arguing that essentially anything he did within the official scope of his duties as president while he was president of the United States he cannot be prosecuted for. You know, if the president does it, it is not illegal. That is his argument. That is not correct. What the Supreme Court has said in the past is that presidents have very broad immunity from civil lawsuits. It's not total immunity. Bill Clinton famously was sued for sexual harassment when he was president, and that suit was allowed to be moved forward. Presidents do have immunity from civil suits for stuff they do within the confines of their official duties. And the reason why they have that absolute immunity is because anyone could file a lawsuit. I could file a thousand lawsuits against you tomorrow. I'd probably lose all of them very quickly, but it's very easy to file lawsuits. And so there's a concern that if certain high ranking officials, not just the president, but also judges and prosecutors, are subject to private lawsuits, they just won't be able to do their job because judges, prosecutors, the president, they all do unpopular things. They all do things that piss people off at times. And if they can be sued every time they piss people off, it's all they're ever going to be able to think about. They won't be able to do their job well. And so that that rule makes sense. The criminal justice system does not work that way. I cannot bring criminal charges against someone. You cannot bring criminal charges against someone. Someone cannot be hit with thousands of surprising criminal suits brought by thousands of private citizens who are mad at them. The way the criminal justice system works is that, at least for federal charges, the charges have to be brought by the Department of Justice. And the Department of Justice can't move forward with the criminal trial until they have presented their evidence to a grand jury. And the grand juries have said, yes, you can indict this person. Even if we thought that there weren't other reasons why you wouldn't want to say the president can do crimes. None of the rationales that the court has given in the past for saying that the president is immune to civil lawsuits should apply to criminal cases. And, and of course, there's tremendous reasons why we don't want the president to be able to do crimes. If you take Trump's theory seriously, it means that let's say that Donald Trump is president again and he doesn't want Katanji Brown Jackson to be on the Supreme Court anymore. So he orders a hit on her. He orders the U.S. Marines to go out and shoot and kill a Supreme Court justice. Now, the president is the commander in chief of the U.S. military. So that is within the official scope of his duties. But I would hope that this Supreme Court would have the sense to recognize that the president should have not have absolute immunity from prosecution if he does something like that. Thank you for that helpful clarification, including where the Trump team's trying to go with this and how that doesn't hold up to not only precedent, but just basic fact. One of the things that you had mentioned was we're dealing with totally uncharted territory here, both in how the justices are being asked to interpret law that's never been a question before. But we're also faced with a former president that has done things that have never been tried before either. So it really is unprecedented in multiple ways. While you have laid out why it is unlikely that Trump would win in this particular limited way around this case, what would be the implications if he did? 
the implications would be horrifying if he wins on this immunity. I mean, he does have a second argument, which is also frivolous, that because he was impeached and only 57 senators voted to convict him, which can lead to his disqualification and not the supermajority. You need 67 senators in order for a successful impeachment. He does argue that the double jeopardy clause precludes that. If they buy the double jeopardy argument, I don't think they will. It is also a bad argument. That wouldn't have too many implications because it would only arise for people who have been previously been impeached. It's not a criminal case. Some of the rules governing double jeopardy are complicated. The general rule is that you can't be put in criminal jeopardy for the right. same set of acts twice. So you can't be threatened with criminal fines twice. You can't be threatened with being thrown in jail twice. That wasn't on the table in his impeachment trial. I mean, it says explicitly in the Constitution that the only thing that Congress can do in an impeachment trial is it can remove someone from office so it can fire one of the federal government's employees and it can say, we're not hiring you back ever again. That's it. Now, look, lots of people get fired every day. And generally, when you're fired, they're not interested in hiring you back. That's not a criminal consequence. If I'm a government employee, if I'm a lawyer at the Department of Justice and I do a crappy job, or if I engage in some sort of misconduct that justifies firing me, I can then also be charged with a crime if it turns out that the misconduct I engage in is not just grounds for terminating my employment, it is also grounds for charging me with a crime. And so the same rule should apply to Donald Trump. The fact that the United States Senate had a proceeding to determine whether we're going to like disqualify this guy from ever being hired by us as an employer again does not mean that he can't then, under the double jeopardy clause, be charged with a crime. That argument is no good. The other argument, like I said, is, is rather breathtaking. So his other argument is that anything he does within the scope of his official authority as president, he cannot be charged with a crime for that. And again, you know, that means that if he orders a Supreme Court justice assassinated, so long as he orders a government agency that he has control over to, to commit the assassination, then like, you know, he can't be charged with the crime. You know, that means that if he orders the military to just march into New York City and start shooting people, he can't be charged with the crime. I mean, what idiot would think that that's what the Constitution says? And, and it certainly is not how the Constitution has been interpreted in the past, because the kind of immunity that applies to the president is not unique to the president. It also applies to judges. It applies to prosecutors. They also have this immunity from civil suits that I discussed before. And it is well established that if a judge or a prosecutor commits a crime in the course of their official conduct, they can be prosecuted. I mean, there are precedents for, it. you know, Alcee Hastings was a judge who was charged with bribery. He was impeached and he was actually convicted, removed from office. And then he was charged with a crime. He actually was acquitted, but, you know, he was prosecuted for conduct that he could not be sued for because it was conduct he engaged in with the judge. The kind of immunity that the president enjoys is identical to the kind of immunity enjoyed by Alcee Hastings and other judges. It is identical to the kind of immunity enjoyed by prosecutors. I don't think even this Supreme Court is so reckless that they are going to say that the president of the United States can do crimes. I was wondering, with all these cases kind of in limbo until something gets decided, what is the timeline that we're looking at with this particular case? This particular case, it could potentially be very quick. 
What happened here is that Trump made this claim that he's immune from being prosecuted. I don't even think he did it because he intends to win. I think his lawyers probably made this claim because it allows them to delay the trial. The way that the rules work is that when there is a case that is before a trial judge and then some issue is appealed, often the trial court temporarily loses jurisdiction over the case while the appeals court is figuring it out. By bringing this frivolous claim that he is immune to prosecution, you know, the trial judge said, no, you're not immune for prosecution. What the hell's wrong with you? And then he appealed it. And so the case is sitting before what's called the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, an intermediate level appeals court below the Supreme Court, above the trial court. And it could potentially sit there for a very long time. And so long as it is sitting, there in an appeals court, the trial judge can't move forward. The criminal trial can't happen. Jack Smith, the senior prosecutor, went to the Supreme Court and said, look, can we just bypass the appeals court? Can you take you, Supreme Court, take this up very quickly? This isn't a serious argument. Let's just get it off the table so we can move forward with this trial. And I mean, we could find out literally any minute now if the court's going to take it. I think they will. How fast they're going to take it. And the big thing I'm looking for in that order is how fast they want this case to move. Are they going to schedule oral arguments immediately after Christmas? Are they going to schedule them, you know, sometime in January? Or will they sit on the case. If they sit on the case, it means that, you know, again, the trial can't move forward. The primary issue in this case, again, I cannot imagine that this Supreme Court is reckless enough to say that the president of the United States is allowed to do whatever crimes he wants, so long as he uses his official powers to do it. I do think, though, that a lot hinges on if they decide this case on January 15th, the trial can move forward and, and, you know, hopefully everything is great. If they decide to sit on this case for weeks or months, that's a problem. Even if they do hear it, they won't make a decision right away, right? That's up to them. They make the rules. They have as much time as they want and they get to decide whenever. Often in these really politically contentious cases involving like the nature of the presidency or who will be president, some of the Nixon cases were decided very, very quickly, you know, dealing with whether or not prosecutors could get access to Nixon's tapes of his recordings when he was in the White House. That was decided very quickly. Bush v. Gore was decided very, very quickly. When the court deems something to be important enough, they can hit the gas. But again, it matters whether they deem it to be important enough. There's basically three possible outcomes in this case. There's the insane outcome where they say the president can do crimes. There's the best outcome for the prosecution where they just very quickly say, no, the president cannot do crimes and then we can move on. And then the third outcome is that they eventually get around to saying that the president can't do crimes, but they move very, very slowly. And that winds up delaying the trial date. Let's move on to Fisher, the United States, regarding the charges of impeding a government proceeding. What is this case about and how could it affect Trump? So this one of the federal criminal statutes that Donald Trump is charged under, 18 U.S.C. 1512C, for people who are counting. This is the statute that makes it a crime to obstruct an official proceeding. You know, Jack Smith's theory is that the January 6th proceeding where Joe Biden was certified as the winner of the 2020 presidential election, that's an official proceeding. And so if you send a mob to try to disrupt it, that is a criminal act. 
And this Fisher case does not involve Trump. This just involves a rando January 6th rioter and not even a particularly important one. I mean, his brief- I think he's an Oath Keeper, maybe. Yeah, I mean- He's not an Oath Keeper leader, but he's just- an oath keeper. I don't really even know like which weird Trump ideological. He's just one of the 300 that was yeah. charged. With yeah, he's just one of them. And like his brief claims that he essentially wandered into the Capitol and then wandered out a few minutes later. While he was there, he didn't assault any police officers or steal anything from Nancy Pelosi's office or, you know, do the other stuff that other rioters did. He claims to be one of the least bad of the people who invaded the Capitol on that day. His argument, and like this is one of those arguments that only a lawyer can even follow. If you read this statute, 18 U.S.C. 1512C, it is like an itemized list. One thing it says you can't do is you can't essentially muck around with documents in order to try to cover something up. And then the next thing says you can't disrupt an official proceeding. And the argument essentially because the catch-all phrase saying don't disrupt an official proceeding appears on the same list with don't muck around with documents, that what Congress really meant was you can't disrupt an official proceeding in a way that involves mucking around with documents or tampering with evidence or something like that. I don't find that argument persuasive. It went up to the D.C. Circuit, and it was a two-to-one decision in front of the D.C. Circuit. A Trump appointee said that he didn't find that argument particularly persuasive. So I am hopeful that the Supreme Court's going to say, no, 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 you you can't disrupt an official proceeding. One reason I hope they're going to say that is for their own self-preservation, because you know what's also an official proceeding? Supreme Court hearings. It's this weird statutory argument Because Trump is charged under this, you know, if this rando January 6th rioter wins, it doesn't necessarily knock out Trump's prosecutions because many of the arguments that Jack Smith makes is that Trump attempted to convince the state official to produce this bullshit document saying these other people were electors or like tried to like get these people certified as fake electors. That kind of stuff involves the sort of mucking around with documents that this rando January 6th protester claims was the only thing that the statute forbids. It doesn't even necessarily prevent Trump from being convicted if the Supreme Court decides to construe the statute narrowly. What I do worry about is that if the court waits until like June to decide this case, Judge Chutkan, the judge hearing Trump's criminal trial, may just not want through that trial until she knows how the Supreme Court's going to interpret the statute. Because you don't want a situation where you run a whole trial, he's convicted, and then the conviction's cast into doubt because the Supreme Court rewrites one of the statutes. A big question regarding, I think, all of Trump's federal cases is time. In particular, what happens if they are still dragging on after an election? What happens to them? Do they just disappear? Does that seem likely? Could he simply have the charges dropped if he were able to regain power? Time-wise, it seems totally within the realm of possibility that the biggest crimes he's charged with don't get resolved through the courts before then. Trump's strategy is pretty clear here. If he can delay the trial until the presidential election and then he's elected president, then the president has command and control over the Department of Justice. So he can just order the Department of Justice to, to drop the charges and like and then that's it. 
That is indeed his strategy. There's also another deadline here, and one that I hope that in particular the Republican justices will care about, which is the American people have a right to know whether or not one of the major party presidential candidates is you know, a convicted felon. Republican primary voters should have a right to know whether they are voting to nominate someone who has committed a terrible insurrectionist crime that may disqualify him from the presidency before they decide to nominate this guy. Ideally, you want the criminal trial to be done, you know, not just before the general election, but before the Republican Party officially anoints Donald Trump as their nominee, because we want to have competitive elections. That's what democracy is. There should be a name other than Joe Biden on the ballot that people who don't want Joe Biden to be the president can vote for and who has a reasonable chance of prevailing if they're any good. I would hope that through some combination of respect for democracy, that they will decide to hit the gas on this thing. Just looking at this from a cynical partisan perspective, if you are Brett Kavanaugh, you don't want Joe Biden to be reelected. You want a Republican to be in the White House next year. And the best thing that you can do if you're Brett Kavanaugh is let this trial move forward as quick as possible, get to a resolution. If Trump is convicted, you know, that then you can potentially disqualify him from running. At the very least, the Republican Party may say, eh, do we, do we really want this guy to run for president from a prison cell? You know, just from a cynical, you know, Republican partisan perspective, if I'm Brett Kavanaugh, I want this to happen very quickly because I want to leave open the possibility that the Republican Party can swap in Nikki Haley or whoever their second choice is as their presidential candidate if they want to. Now, I mean, will Brett do that? I don't know. If I were a justice, just thinking in terms of like what is fair to the American people and what best serves the interests of democracy, you want this to move as fast as possible because you, you, you want the voters to know who they're voting for and what that person has done. If that person has done something that disqualifies him either as a constitutional matter or just as a moral matter, then like the Republican electorate should have the opportunity to pick someone else. I think that there's also something about concerns regarding stability that I cannot put myself in the minds of some of these so-called justices. Like I do think that there might be questions about what would best maintain stability. I think that it's the same for some in the GOP who may not want Trump, but are afraid of what might arise. The chaos and vengeance of Trump's base is something that I do think, rightly so, is frightening. It's part of the equation. Whether it should be or shouldn't be is kind of besides the point. I wanted to get your read on Colorado. Yeah. Their Supreme Court said, yes, Trump did that insurrection and disqualified him from being on their ballot. This is obviously not going to stay where it is. Did it already get appealed? The Colorado decision has not yet been appealed to the Supreme okay. Court. It seems like ludicrous that he would be like, oh, yeah, but it's only Colorado. We should expect that to be something that the Supreme Court hears. Just to, to take a step back here. So the Colorado Supreme Court, there is a provision of the Constitution, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which says that essentially if you have previously held high government office and then you engage in an insurrection or a rebellion, then you are henceforth disqualified from holding high office again. 
And the argument here is very straightforward, that the January 6th attack on the Capitol was an insurrection and that Trump incited that insurrection through months of claiming the election was stolen, claiming even before the election happened that if he lost, it could only be because it was stolen, you know, often using sometimes very thinly veiled, sometimes not even veiled at all rhetoric, encouraging his supporters to engage in violent acts. In, in order to overturn the election, telling them to march on the Capitol on January 6th and telling them specifically Vice President Mike Pence, who plays a purely ceremonial role, but for some reason MAGA types latched on to this ceremonial role, tell them that they should specifically target Mike Pence because Mike Pence is the guy that they claimed could prevent Biden's victory from being certified. And so the claim is just that counts as an insurrection then he should be disqualified. Pretty straightforward argument. There is another question looming in this case, which is what is the process to determine whether or not someone engaged in an insurrection? And so one thing that worries me in the case, if the Supreme Court were to just say, well, the Colorado Supreme Court looked at it, they determined it's an insurrection, that's good enough for us, so he's disqualified. What's going to happen is five minutes later, every single state Supreme Court that's controlled by Republicans is going to make up a pretext to disqualify Joe Biden. We need two things. We need some sort of national standard that determines what counts as an insurrection. And only the Supreme Court can set that. And then we need to have some sort of due process protection. There needs to be some sort of minimal standard set out for like, here's the sort of evidentiary rules. Here's the sort of process, you know, the right to cross-examine, you know, the right to introduce evidence, the right to discovery, all of these things that, you know, you would expect for any kind of decision this monumental, we have to make sure that there is sufficient due process because we want to avoid the situation where, say, the Supreme Court of Georgia decides to move Joe Biden from the ballot because they claim that, I don't know, the fact that his son was once addicted to cocaine makes Joe Biden an insurrectionist. I have concerns about the Colorado court's decision. My concerns are that they used an expedited process in order to do the fact finding here. You know, they relied on the January 6th committee's report from from out of Congress. They um, they used a process that doesn't involve full discovery where both sides can gather documents and information from the other that it, they, they used a truncated process. And that concerns me. Again, we have to have one universal rule for how much process is used, because if we don't have that, Joe Biden gets kicked off the ballot in Georgia or Arizona or who knows wherever else. While I don't think that process necessarily has to be a criminal hearing, a criminal hearing will suffice. So like if Donald Trump is convicted of trying to steal the election in um, Judge Chutkan's court, then I think that's enough. He can be declared an insurrectionist and, and pulled off the ballot. The point that I'm making here is that I hope that we can see around corners here, especially on social media. I've heard a lot of people claiming that it is self-evident that Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection. I think it is that Donald Trump did indeed engage in an insurrection. But process really matters here. And the reason why process matters here is because if you don't have adequate due process, then every Republican controlled state Supreme Court in the country will kick every Democrat off of every ballot. I do think that it is worth noting none of our listeners, I can assume, really followed that case really, really closely. It was one of many that were attempting to use this 14th Amendment strategy to get Trump 
disqualified, removed from the ballots. But it is worth noting that it, while it was truncated, it wasn't like it was like a sham. It was a real trial. Trump's lawyers did put on witnesses, did provide evidence, and they rested Trump's case early. So it's not like there was not a real trial. It was shorter. I hear what you're saying, absolutely, in terms of what the implications are, if this is okay. But my gut would be that the Supreme Court rules in Trump's favor in this particular area. My bigger point to listeners that I want to make sure people understand the likelihood is that Trump will be on the ballot in Colorado, even though they made this decision because of the timeline of when there's like a cushion for the Supreme Court to intervene. So what the state Supreme Court said, they, they, they said that Trump needs to be removed from the ballot and then they stayed that decision to give the Supreme Court a chance to weigh in. The Supreme Court will have the final word here. If the U.S. Supreme Court says remove him from the ballot, then he's removed from the ballot. You know, if the U.S. Supreme Court says it, then he would most likely be removed from the ballot in all 50 states. And, you know, our Trump problem w- will be done. I would not count on the judge fairy to show up and sprinkle magical pixie dust all over the United States. And then the United States is saved from fascism. If that happens, great. But we can't count on that. Fascism is going to have to be defeated at the ballot box, if at all. You know, we should assume that Trump is going to be on the ballot and that the way that he will be defeated is that Joe Biden, you know, will win the 2024 election the old fashioned way. The Judge Ferry decides to save us. Great. We just can't count on that. And I also think that, like, when you're thinking about this disqualification issue, it's important to keep two somewhat contradictory thoughts in mind. So one is that this provision of the Constitution I was talking about, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, only applies to people who have broad public support. Because, like, if you're an insurrectionist and you don't have broad public support, you're not going to get elected anyway. Like, it it doesn't matter if you're disqualified or not, because you're not going to win an election. The whole point of this provision, what the framers of the 14th Amendment were afraid of, is there would come a time when there would be an individual who was both a threat to our constitutional system of government and also has enough public support that they plausibly could get elected. I don't buy the argument that it's anti-democratic or that, you know, because Trump has a lot of popular support, therefore, no, no, that is what it is for. That is the only thing that is for. It's not there to remove the people who aren't going to get elected in the first place. It's there to disqualify the people who could plausibly win. That's the first thought that you have to keep in mind. The second thought that you have to keep in mind, though, is that Trump has a lot of mass support and a lot of them have guns. You know, they already attacked the U.S. Capitol once. If you're going to remove him using this 14th Amendment mechanism, you have to do it in a way that is just gravid with all of the trappings of legitimacy that you can throw on it. I mean, that's why I've advocated for like using something like a criminal conviction as the trigger, because like if some rando state court gets to make this decision, 40% of the country is still going to support Trump. That's how your insurrection becomes a rebellion. 
That's how you wind up with the sort of violent uprising that we do not want. I think whatever the U.S. Supreme Court does in this case, it has to navigate between those two very concerning barriers. You know, one is the fact that Donald Trump is popular support is the reason we have the 14th Amendment. The purpose of this thing is to save us from people who could win elections, not to save us from people who are going to lose anyway. But then the second thing to keep in mind is because he has popular support, he is dangerous and you can't get all of the proud boys or, you know, all of like the most rabid MAGA types to stand down. But what you can do is you can load this up with enough of the trappings of a normal, serious judicial proceeding, you know, with a jury and all of the things that we recognize before, you know, we impose serious consequences on someone. And I think that that helps to marginalize the people who, after Trump is potentially convicted and potentially removed from the ballot, would want to resort to Second Amendment solutions. That's really clarifying. And I appreciate that. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to help us navigate all of this. And I want to make sure that I point our good listeners in all the right places to follow more of your work, should they wish to do so. We're going to put in the show notes, the link to your page on Vox. Is there anywhere else that you would like to direct people to? So I've largely left Elon's Twitter because Elon Musk. I am trying to migrate over to Zuck's Twitter. My handle there is just Ian.Milheiser. And beyond that, you know, look at my Vox page, buy my books. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Refuse Fascism. Got thoughts or questions off this episode? We want to hear them. Ideas for topics or guests? Yes, please send them to us. Reach me at the site previously known as Twitter at Zambi Goldman. Drop me a line at Samantha Goldman at RefuseFascism.org. Find Refuse Fascism on Threads, Mastodon, Blue Sky, Instagram, all at Refuse Fascism. And yeah, I now have a TikTok, even though I haven't figured out how to use it really well or use it the right way. Join me, help me on that TikTok journey over at Sam Goldman RF. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a voicemail. See the show notes for that button. Want to support the show? It's super simple. Show us some love by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And of course, follow, subscribe so you never miss an episode. Become a patron to support our pod and content creation to help people understand and act to stop the fascist threat. We have no sponsors and count on you. Whether you can give $2 a month or $20 a month, it all makes a difference in producing and promoting this independent, all-volunteer weekly podcast. Give today at patreon.com slash refusefascism or visit refusefascism.org and hit the donate button. Just select recurring donation if you want to make it monthly. Thank you all for your support. And thanks to Paul Street, Richie Marini, Lena Thorne, and Mark Tinkleman for helping produce this episode. Thanks to incredible volunteers. We have transcripts available for each show. So be sure to visit refusefascism.org and sign up to get them in your inbox. Until next Sunday, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. 